Egypt is enticing and maybe a little intimidating. Between the pyramids, sand dunes, and the Sphinx, you'll find a modern Muslim nation that's a gateway to the troubled Middle East. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In today's political climate, American travelers need to be smart, especially in this part of the world. But that doesn't mean you won't find a warm welcome. It's a, still a very generous society. We perhaps in the West have lost this idea of just open-handedness, just come and have a cup of tea with me, sit and chat. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll get an update on travel to Egypt from tour guide Colin Clement. A Scotsman by birth, Colin lives in Alexandria, Egypt. He'll fill us in on how to experience both the rich history and the modern pleasures of Egypt while surviving the heat, the hustlers, and minimizing the hassles. We'll venture to Egypt, take your travel calls, and enjoy another round of haikus from our globetrotting listeners. It's all up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Egypt is exciting and exotic, with famous pyramids and a sultry whiff of Arabia. But how can a Western visitor enjoy its sights and culture while avoiding its pitfalls? Coming up, we learn what it takes to enjoy Egypt. First, let's hear about your travel plans. Our number is 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. And Lee is on the line in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Lee. Hi, Rick. Thanks for calling. My husband and I are planning what's the first um, extended vacation we've had in quite a while. It slightly predates our 25th anniversary, All right. and we're going to Italy for a month or so. But our first week is still kind of open, and we have some questions. We'll be there from uh, mid-August, and we wanted to spend some time in Venice, but our pennies are, are pretty tight. And my husband has a friend from Croatia. And he said, oh, well, maybe you don't want to go to Venice in August. You might consider going to Croatia instead and staying in my family's house, which is currently has no water or electricity, and you'll save money if you fly into Frankfurt and drive down. So I guess my questions are, is flying into Frankfurt and returning through Frankfurt possibly the best fiscal choice. Second, what do you know about the political status of Croatia? And then third, is Venice our friend in August? Is Venice your friend in August? Oh, Venice is my friend 365 days out of the year. It's just, oh, okay. it's just hot and crowded. It's a hot and crowded friend in August. Hot let me, and crowded. Let me answer your questions. First of all, as far as uh, flying into Frankfurt in order to save money by not flying directly where you want to go, even if you're on a tight budget, your time is worth a lot. And I That's question true. the wisdom of flying into one airport, renting a car, and driving for 12 uh-huh. hours or whatever, when for $100 more, you can probably change flights and connect right into Croatia. Remember, when you're flying from the United States all the way to Europe to one city and then to connect on to another city is usually um, very cheap at add-on to the fare. I don't know exactly how they figure it, but talk to your travel agent about that. But I think it's very rare that you can actually save money when all the dust settles by flying into one major airport, renting a car, and driving the rest of the way. Okay. Generally, fly where you want to go. And I always say fly open jaws. Fly into one city and out of another. Now, if you're going to go to Croatia in order to avoid the high cost of hotels in Venice, well... Maybe that'll save you money, but that's not going to give you what you want to do on your trip. You want to experience Venice. You've always thought about Venice. It costs you $150 a night for a hotel. I think you're, I think a better value is to spend $150 for a hotel in Venice than to spend $30 for a hotel in some town that you don't want to see just because you've got a friend who's got a room with no water or electricity in it. <laughs> now, maybe the town that he's talking about is a great town. Maybe you want to see Croatia. i got no problem with that. Croatia is a wonderful place to travel. And people who want to balance a trip with all the famous and crowded and expensive places in, in Italy, a very good idea is to go to Croatia. I'm all for that. I would go to Italy first and then go to Croatia. Uh, Croatia will be more of a challenge, a little more exotic, and it'd be good to get Italy out of the way first. And um, Croatia could be a, a real good idea. Now, as far as politics go, 
Croatia is one of the lucky parts of the former Yugoslavia, and it does have this image of war-torn country and so on. And the town was heavily bombed, but now it's all rebuilt, and it's it's kind of scarred emotionally because you know their their neighbors were sitting in the hill overlooking the town, taking pot shots at them, and a lot of people died. And it was a civil war in a lot of ways. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Eastern Europe it's it's nothing new for them, and they've been living with this sort of strife for uh, centuries now. Okay. Uh, you know, so it's a sort of a rough and tumble history. Uh, as far as uh, security goes and stability and politics, there's absolutely nothing to be concerned about in Croatia. No uh, Croatia is a no. wonderful place, and it's an offbeat place, too. It's one of the few offbeat places that you can go these days. The Germans are there. When the Germans are there, you know it's, uh, it's, it's about to take off. Uh, then the Americans are going to get there. And then after that, the Japanese busloads will come, and you know it's well discovered. So <laughs> well, this is this okay. is a good time to do Croatia. Okay. And then uh, your question about August. Um, well, you know, Italy's crowded. Italy's crowded all year long, frankly. And uh, just you'd want to get a reservation in advance for Venice, um, and you're going to pay for it. And it's one of the greatest cities on this planet. Thank you so much. And we want to tell you how much we've enjoyed everything we've seen that you ever do. And you're so inspiring, and you're so detailed, and you're so savvy, not to be trite. <laughs> and um, thank you so much for the contributions that you've made uh, that have enriched our household. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, it's, um, I, I, gotta, I guess I got to say I'm thankful for public broadcasting that, that makes this possible. Oh, My... yes. Well, thank you so much. And okay, our Lee. best wishes to your family. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. We have an email from Chris in Georgia, and her daughter is studying in Verona, and she wants more tips on students studying abroad. Well, for me, the great opportunity for studying abroad is even better when the kids can use their base as a springboard to explore Europe from that uh, home base sort of uh, study central. And uh, when you're in uh, Verona, for instance, you are just very short train ride away from, from some wonderful stops. Uh, and less about an hour away, you can get to Venice. You can get to Vicenza, uh, the neoclassical sort of city of Palladian architecture. And you can get to Milano. You can get to Lake Como. You can even get down to Florence. Uh, lots of exciting side tripping from Verona. A key for students is to have their student ID card so they can get their student discounts and have a youth hostel card so you can sleep affordably. It's about $20 a night for a bed in a youth hostel these days. And uh, to remember that just simple point-to-point train tickets are quite inexpensive, and you can go round trips sometimes for a savings. Uh, again, a key for me to get the most out of your foreign study program in Europe is to spend a little time afterwards or take advantage of your three-day weekends and so on by uh, doing some traveling. There are student rail passes, and there are wonderful rail passes that you don't need to use in the consecutive day kind of way that we think of when we think of a rail pass. The new flexi versions give you uh, a 60-day window in which to travel any individual 5, 10, or 15 days. It'll save you a lot of money. Thanks for your email, Chris. And we got Darren on the line in Portland. Hi, Rick. Hi, how you doing? Good. Well, uh, my wife and I have been traveling to Europe now for last few years and uh, we've you know we've done trips to Austria to Germany and uh, Belgium and France and Italy we've always made our way around on train or bus we've never rented a car we've kind of had the perception that that's more expensive I just want to get your take on what are the trade-offs of cost versus convenience versus the experience Hmm. of, you know, renting a car versus getting around by train. Yeah, well, you're like a lot of travelers, Darren. You start with train. That seems like the the obvious first way to go. And you're seeing all the big places, and you go downtown Paris to downtown right. Amsterdam in four hours, and it's sort of, that's the lickety-split way to do Europe. Then you get a little more experience, a little more sophisticated, maybe a little more money, and you think, I'm going to be more focused on my trip, and I'm going to have the luxury of a car. I think people got to remember, car is not as expensive as the image. We think $5 a gallon gas, and we kind of freak out. Mm-hmm. But that's a small part of the equation. It's peanuts. I mean, I, I've had a car for a couple of weeks and filled up a couple of times, and it's uh, $100 for gas. But, you know, if you've got two or three or four people in the car over two weeks, it's almost nothing. You'd spend that much money on two two-hour train rides. Right. Uh, so uh, don't let gas get in the way of your judgment, the cost of gas. I think it's pretty um, clear the more people you pack into vehicle, the cheaper it gets per person. One or two people, if they're just driven by their budget uh, sort of needs, likely will go cheaper by public transportation. Three or more cheaper by rental car. Eight people in a minibus is dirt cheap. That's mm-hmm. how I started my tour business was taking eight people around in a minibus. And just the, just uh, for me, just talking eight people into sharing one vehicle instead of getting eight rail passes, that provided more than enough money for me to be a profitable tour company when I got started, even if everything else was just a wash. Do you right. follow me there? Yeah. 
So for two people traveling, are there cases where you would recommend get a car versus a train? Yeah, there sure are. And if you go 17 days or more, I believe it is, you can lease a car, which is a clever way to get around. You're, you're technically buying it and selling it back or, or something where you, as far as taxes and insurance go. So you'll save some money that way. You want to get a car with unlimited mileage and... Uh, the big racket, I think, is the collision damage waiver insurance. Cars come with a legal minimum insurance, which in some cases is like the value of the car, and that's the deductible. And you need to pay 15 bucks a day or something like that to buy that away, and then you have the ability to take the car back when you're done uh, almost an unrecognizable shambles and just say, sorry, I'm out of here. Um, uh, you know, but now they've, they've realized that there's some people abusing that. So even collision damage waiver uh, supplement comes with a three or $400 yeah. penalty, which is good. You just want to be able to drive on the Autobahn aggressively instead of cowering over on the shoulder as everybody's screaming by you. I think it's actually safer to be able to drive confidently. Um, to answer your question about two people in a car, yeah, I think you'd be surprised how car is competitive with rail. Remember, all over Europe, they're investing in their rail system like we cannot imagine here in the right. United States. They, you know, the, the bullet train from London to Paris, it goes from London to Paris now in two and a half hours. You'd think that would be fast enough, but they're spending millions and millions of dollars to make it faster yet. And in a couple of years, the time from London to Paris will go down from two and a half hours to two hours. Um, so that comes with a price, and you pay for it when you buy your tickets. On the other hand, I think car rental is very, very uh, competitive. And it's a confusing Rubik's Cube of pricing because car rental prices vary from company to company, country to country, and month to month. In my work, I like to put it in a chart and say, this is how it works, and there you go. But it just doesn't work with car rental prices. What I have to do is give people the 800 numbers and encourage them to spend an hour on the phone talking to different companies and see what the prevailing best deal is for two weeks in July in Portugal or whatever. And you'll find, you know, in one country, in one scenario, one company is hands down the best, and in the next country, it's a completely different story. So you want to you want to check that out. Okay. Now, are you traveling with uh, just your wife or with kids or what? Well, actually, that's another question I had is, is uh, we've got two young kids. We've always traveled, just my wife and I, but we want to start bringing the kids. And so another question I had was, at what age is best to start bringing them where they get the most out of the experience and also where we have a good experience hmm. at the same that's, time? That's the, tiff, that's the tough challenge. Yeah. What, what are your kids' age? Um, four and two. Four and two. See, our kids are the same spread, and we traveled with them every year since they were born. And it gets better and better, to be honest. Um, actually, the, yeah, it gets better and better. And our kids are 14 and 16, or no, 15 and 17 now. And uh, it's it's the best yet. But um, four and two, you're in the bad area. Yeah. Um, in a couple more years, it'll get it'll get where the kids are actually getting something out of it. They're not going to get an, an appreciation of the Enlightenment or something like right. that or the Renaissance. They're going to get an appreciation that, hey, there's different people out there and there's different food. And all of a sudden, your kids, when they're eight or 10 years old, will, will have a, a, a fancy food for uh, certain kinds of food that other kids just go yuck. And I think that's right. pretty cool. When there's uh, tumultuous events around the planet, my kids clue into it because these are real people over there because they've been over there. And and that's really valuable. That's great. It sounds like your kids have had some good experiences, and uh, thanks for the good suggestions. All right. Well, thank you for the call, and best wishes with your travels. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye. We're following our travel dreams, and Egypt is calling. With the help of a great local guide, we're enjoying camels, pyramids, and King Tut. It's all coming up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, let's go to Egypt. Why not? The land of the Nile, the land of the pharaohs. And I've got with me a Scotsman who lives in Alexandria, who helps me do tours in Greece. This guy is sort of a Renaissance man. And uh, it's fascinating to me to think of a Westerner just living by choice in Egypt, not in Cairo, but in Alexandria, the big port on the Mediterranean. Colin Clement. Colin, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Just, uh, we got a lot of questions about uh, Egypt. We got a lot of people on the line that love to talk to you. Uh, but tell me just, uh, I was going to introduce you, but uh, introduce yourself. What, what do you do in, what's a Scotsman doing in Egypt? Well, I have a little, I work for a French archaeological mission. Scotsman working for a French archaeological mission in Egypt. In okay. Egypt, yeah. Uh, well, as I, I can speak French, English, and Arabic, so I'm useful to them. I can do communications, uh, research work, translation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I have a little publishing company on the side making general public history books, mostly about Alexandria in the area. For, in English for tourists? In English or? and French for tourists, yeah, for oh, tourists. And we're going to do an Arabic publication. How's the, um, how's the tourist industry right now in Egypt? It's, it's booming. It's doing very well. Actually booming. Yeah. yeah. People are... The uh, numbers are up. Yeah. Is it popular with Europeans? Very. I, I don't very think it's that popular with Americans. No, I don't know why, actually, because it's one of the great destinations of the yeah. world. Oh, um, man, when I was there working on our TV show, I just couldn't stop thinking about what a great place this would be for, for tours, to take groups there, you know, Americans. It's cheap, it's full of history, the people are friendly. Absolutely, no. In, in fact, tourism is a very important earner for Egypt. I mean, they rely quite heavily on, on it. So if we think of Egypt from a tourist point of view, Colin, we've got, um, of course, Cairo, the capital mm. city, Luxor, which is sort of like the, where all the ancient stuff is, or mm. the most enjoyable ancient uh, sites, I suppose, the Nile River, a lush green sort of ribbon that cuts through the, the desert, and then a few little odd oasis towns. What, what, more, what more is there from a tourist point of view if you're thinking in general terms about an itinerary? Well, the, the, probably the most growing part of tourism in, in Egypt these days is, is in the Red Sea. It's actually not cultural tourism. It's sunshine tourism or diving. You've got some of the best uh, scuba mm. diving in the world of Ras Muhammad in the Sinai Peninsula. Now, that area is growing very, very fast. So you've got 12 months of the year tourism. So you can combine it. You're finding people are flying into Cairo, doing, you know, the wonders of Islamic Cairo pyramids, down the Nile for some temples, then across the Red Sea to, you know, chill out, go diving. So most American tourists, I suppose, are just hung up on the pyramids. Yes. I mean, most, most tourists still think of Egypt as being primarily, you know, its pyramids and temples. And most of the ancient stuff you see really is... Uh Kind of art for dead people, isn't it? I mean, religion permeated life back in the time of the pharaohs, and uh, the sun would raise, rise in the east and set in the west, and uh, people lived uh, on the east bank of the Nile, yeah. and they buried, buried their people on the west, west bank, bank of yeah. the Nile, yeah. which cut through the, the world, everything they knew, north-south. Uh, the, the Nile flooded every year, uh, nourishing the farmland, so they thought God was happy with them. They thought their pharaoh was God on earth, so Absolutely. they voted for him again. Absolutely. I mean, incredible nice stability. Choice, yeah. I mean, you got Eisenhower yeah. here for 2,000 years, yeah. right, yeah. from 3,000 to 1,000 B.C. Well, it goes on and on and on. And for, for the outsider, it kind of looks like nothing ever changed. Yeah. However, Egyptologists would you know, take a task for that. That must make you batty when some tour guide like Ooh. me says, nothing changed for 2,000 years. Well, I'm guilty of that, too, because my specialty is more the Hellenistic, the Greco-Roman period. It, which Alexander, Alexandria, of course, was founded by Alexander the Great. It didn't well, exist yeah. prior to that. So there's an entirely different history in archaeology. Now, that's interesting because for me, I'm just such a generalist. Uh, the, the interesting things about Egypt stopped when uh, Greece sort of takes the torch and, 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 and everybody's looking at the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and then the Greeks of the Golden Age. So I think of Egypt from a pharaoh point of view, 3000 to 1000 BC. Take us from 1000 BC to, to 2000 uh, AD. What? Well, 2000 AD. Well, I mean, ultimately, when Alexandria is what, 330 odds before Christ, he comes. He takes Hellenism. So Alexandria from Macedonia, present Alexander like the Great, Yugoslavia. Macedonia, yeah. He takes over Greece. He spreads Greek culture everywhere and mm -hmm. uh, establishes uh, establishes cities all right in the Middle East. Alexandria, named Alexandria, after Alexander yeah, the Great. Absolutely, which grows into one of being the only rival to Rome, to be perfectly honest. Is that right? So that was yes. the second city of the Mediterranean world. Oh, it was the first city of the Mediterranean world. I understand first. they had the biggest library. Right? Exactly, the huge library. Uh, they had the, the, the museum, the House of Muses. It was... The first time I think you could say that people started accumulating knowledge for the sake of accumulating rather than for just political control or for taxation purposes. Whatever. Mm -hmm. The library was literature as well as so they had a love of administration. Knowledge. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I, I understand before a boat was allowed to moor, they would have to give up all of their uh, uh, scrolls to be copied for the library. Exactly. There is, there is a, t a tale of that. They oh, man. Them up for copying. And usually they weren't copied. The, the library would keep the originals and give the copies back to... Oh, give them a photocopy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. 
chiseled on something. Okay, that's okay. fascinating stuff. If a tourist is going to Egypt, you're going to do the main stuff. What one idea would you propose for somebody to get off the beaten path to go to Egypt to have a real magic backdoor experience? More and more is access to the, the, the desert, access to the oases. Okay, so Khargal, midnight Bahia. at the oasis. Exactly. Can yeah. you have a midnight at the oasis experience? Oh, you can very much. So Siwa, really? Siwa which was the oasis of Amun, where Alexander the Great himself went to be claimed. The oasis of Amun? In, uh, yeah, Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra. So, so that was... Uh, sun, the sun god. sun god, essentially, yeah. Did Akhenaten worship Amun? Akhenaten did. He, he, he uh, worshipped Ra. That's a, he, he chiseled it down all just to the one... Sort of okay, so this god is thing. the oasis of that great god. Yeah. And you go there, you can actually go there and have silhouettes of palm trees in the moonlight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And there's a fantastic mud brick citadel right in the middle of town, which unfortunately has not been very well preserved and is melting away as, as the years go by. But it's a... It is a very yeah. You want you want an oasis. This is you know, it's three hundred miles south into the Libyan desert from the North African coast. Three hundred miles into yeah. the desert. Yeah. How do you get there? Uh, bus, bus ride. Bus ride. Just across yeah. what do you call it? Hard pan yeah, road. Just, yeah. Because I've done. No, no. Bus. It's actually a metal road. It is a, it, a tarmac road the whole way. There's a tarmac road. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I've been out on desert trips in trucks in mm. Morocco or something like that, and it's just. You can see these mirages and the heat mm-hmm. coming off and just flat, as, and you see a few camels here and there, and then you come to an oasis. Mm-hmm. So tourists can do that in Egypt, and how do you find out about that? Oh, it's, 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 it's in the guidebooks, yeah, and it's more and more on the beaten track, and more and more tour operators in Cairo, for example, will be offering trips to either Siwa or to the other oasis, but you can go there by public transport. One of the highlights for me on my trip to Egypt was going to Luxor, renting a bicycle, going across, taking the, walking it onto the ferry with all the commuters, and then biking in just through the villages. Yeah. Can you still get to villages that seem sort of stuck in the past in Egypt? Oh, very much so, yeah. It because doesn't take you far. It doesn't take, you don't have to go very so far. So the cities are modern, but that the traditional old world. And I would strongly recommend it if you do go to Luxor, because the trouble with Luxor is the conjunction of mass tourism and of those who are there to rip off mass tourism. Yeah. So yeah. to get out into the surrounding villages, you'll find you'll get back to the sort of straightforward normal Egyptians who are getting on with their lives being farmers and... Okay, so you're going to go to Luxor. You're going to. This is, by the way, an overnight train ride south of Cairo, or a big long cruise on the on the river, or yeah. something, or a quick flight. A quick flight, an hour Most flight, probably. Yeah. And then you get to Luxor, which really is Cairo, Luxor. You got to do those two places when you yeah. go to Egypt, and then you can get offbeat after that. But in Luxor, you're going to see Karnak and the temples, and you're going to go to see Queen Hatshepsut's uh, temple and the Valley of the Kings, where the, first they would put their tombs in pyramids, and grave robbers kept breaking into them. So. Mm-hmm. These guys are waking up in heaven with absolutely nothing. It really, really was disappointing after spending half your life building a pyramid to protect your valuables, I guess. Yeah. So uh, they would hide their tombs instead. That's mm-hmm. why we found King Tut's tomb perfect because he hid his tomb, right? Yeah, they just exactly, discovered yeah. it in the last century or something. You can go visit King Tut's tomb and so on. But then, as Colin is saying, rent a bike and just go to villages. Even though you got all this crass tourism three miles away, mm-hmm. amazing. Oh, you can step, you know, step back into sort of normal Egypt. And the Egyptians are incredibly hospitable people. You'll find them a pain in the neck when you're in Luxor. But yeah. as soon as you step outside, they're you know they're marvelous people. Oh, because some kid who's selling some fake uh, antiquity is going to mm-hmm. make more in ten minutes with a stupid tourist than his dad makes all day yeah, to in a the factory. To a certain extent, that's the case. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Take that is the same as anywhere else. Anywhere else where you have, you know, a mass of tourists descending on, on a particular site. Especially in the developing world where there's such a well, difference between... disparity between, between rich and poor. Between, you you know. are, by definition, rich because you're there. Oh, it was it was so clear to me. Every time I went out of those villages and I took a snap photograph of some guy who was, uh, you know, uh, farming in the, in, the, in the fields, and I'd take another one just to make sure I got a good shot. I mean, I just spent, for those two pieces of film, what he's making all day long working. Yeah. And uh, I just didn't even think about it. Yeah, in the big cities, you can hire a day laborer for 16 Egyptian pounds, and there are six Egyptian pounds to the dollar. So, so you get your servant for two and a half dollars a day? You can. Wow. A lot of, throughout the developing world, I talk to people like you working there, and it's not a, it's not a kind of a slavery thing. It's just the local, um, you know, your, your, your uh, housekeeper cost two and a half dollars a day. I mean, anybody on any sort of wage, like I suppose you're getting, could afford that if they wanted to. Well, yeah. I mean, I know when I say that, I mean, a day laborer would be someone who's coming in and doing hard work. Okay. You know, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that people survive on very little money. Right. Take me on a Faluka ride. Oh, absolutely. Faluka rides. What is it? it well, Faluka is, is the traditional lanteen-sailed uh, riverboat. You know, it used to be made of, it's sort of little dao. Maybe people know the word dao more than Faluka. It's like a small so version a, of that, a riverboat. A little riverboat powered yeah. uh, by poling by and by sail. Poling and sail, yeah. 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 And you can uh, you can hire w- your private feluka as oh, the sun goes a, down. You can go for a ride in the feluka. The sun goes down and have your you know have 
have sundowners. You can go for a four-day ride in the Felucca and then wow. travel from Luxor, that would be great. Luxor to Aswan. Sleep oh. on board. They'll do the cooking for you. Highlight of my day. Every day in Luxor was when it was so hot in the afternoon. I'd get on a Felucca as the sun's going down, and it's cooler on the river, mm-hmm. and have these guys uh, take me for a little trip. Yeah. It was just so, so romantic, so beautiful. I'm talking with Colin Clement, who uh, works for a French archaeological mission in uh, Egypt. And since you're into the uh, archaeological stuff, um, Colin, uh, where, where would a tourist find the best Egyptian art? In Egypt or in Europe? Ah, good point. There's uh, huge collections in the British Museum and the Louvre, of course, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, and also in Berlin and in Copenhagen. And basically, the 19th century, before archaeology became a science, it was, I know, it was an awful lot of looting, you could say official looting of uh, the country. Sanctioned looting. Sanctioned looting. Some, some uh, two-bit king down there would say, sure, give me some yeah. whatever you got and you can take yeah. home Nefertiti. Well, well exactly. I mean, the, the, How did Nefertiti, the most famous and beautiful piece of Egyptian art, I think, it ended up in Berlin? I oh, just, well, that was that's, that was actually, that was essentially smuggled. I think that was in the immediate pre-war period. A Swiss archaeologist who was working for, a, I think it's Swiss archaeologist working for a German institute. I don't think he was actually... Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact Did story. Did they have some arrangement where they let these Europeans in and they could dig and dig and dig and uncover all this great stuff and the government would say, well, you can take so many pieces home with you, but we will benefit by your expertise and you'll leave the lion's share of it in Egypt? Well, that was roughly the idea. They did. They could take a certain percentage of things away home. That has all changed now, completely nothing. I bet. I bet they're very are, careful of it now. Oh, yes. And, and Egypt is pressing to get okay, many Okay, so the big three back. Egyptian museums in Europe would be? Let's see, uh, British Museum. Louvre and in Berlin. And I was just at the the new Egyptian museum that's downtown in Berlin now instead of West Berlin. It's just moved down right to the center, and it is incredible. State-of-the-art, what a wonderful display of Nefertiti and much, much more. And they've just gone over the top as far as making it really informational. So if we go to Berlin, don't miss that. Let's say you're not going to Europe and you're going to go to Egypt. What's, oh, what's the grand museum there? The National Museum itself. In Tah- Cairo. In Cairo, in Tahrir Square. So, it is a, an astounding visit. It's a, they're, they are, they're building a new museum out by the pyramids. There's a whole project to, to upgrade their museology. Because it was very old school and musty when I was oh, it's, there. It's, it's, a, it's a, like a cross between a junk shop and a Bella Lugosi film amazing. set. It was amazing. A yeah. Bella Lugosi film set, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's a good point just in general. Um, when you go to Mexico, if you go to Turkey, you go to Greece, you go to Egypt, in the capital city, you got the great museum with all the great artifacts in these days, beautifully presented. Yeah. Go there first, get your bearings, and then head off into the into the ruins. Absolutely, yeah. Is there still a good museum in Luxor? There is a very good museum in Luxor. In fact, that was developed good some time ago now, but it has got some excellent pieces. It's well laid out. It's quite well signposted. It's far, marvelously lit. That was there just last November, and there's a yeah, they're, they're, they're redoing it. They added some new rooms. No, it is actually one of So that's a nice uh, prep, prep for going off into the yeah, um, some Valley really of the Kings. Quickly, a couple more practical things, then we'll get to our callers. I'm talking with Colin Clement, who's a tour guide friend of mine. He leads tours for me around uh, Greece, and he does it expertly because he's so into ancient cultures and art and history and so on. And he lives in Alexandria. Uh, Colin, when's the best time to go to Egypt for a tourist? I've heard it's so hot in the summer that tires are literally melting to the asphalt. Oh, I would stay away from you know You don't want to go in high summer. It's too hot. It's far, far. If you do go in the summer, you get up at 5 and you sightsee till about 10. Yeah. And you take a yeah. five-hour siesta and you get out late in the afternoon and the evening. Anyone who's from a northern temperate climate will not enjoy it. Is it, is it getting warmer? I mean, we hear about global warming. I mean, how, can it get warmer? Do people oh. concern? Are they concerned about that in Egypt? Well, they, I mean, they're concerned about the the, the the fact that so much well, the delta is so low lying. That's you yeah. know the rising sea levels and stuff like that, which That's is problematic. Right. So and Egypt, seeing Africa. that as the sea rises, it's going to really inundate a lot of. Uh, well, there's a strong possibility, given that the northern North Africa is slipping underneath the European plate anyway. So, oh, it's a double whammy. Yeah. Slow motion. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, so the best time to go is when? Uh, well, I personally would say April. What about the dead of winter? The dead of winter is kind of high season, so you might find that prices are up. Because it's so comfortable? Because it is cooler, yeah. So, okay. so if you can afford it, if you can winter afford it, is great. Winter is high season, but I would say, you know, that... April, October? Yes, April, October, or into November is fine, fine, fine. Now, we hear about all this fundamentalism, all mm-hmm. these crazy things that Iran's saying and so on, and Egypt has a very strong fundamental movement. My understanding was for a while that the Egyptian secular government was thinking it was ruling, but there was this uh, shadow parallel government that was really in the in the mosques and the schools and, and the fundamentalist uh, Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, when there's even parts of Egypt that were not controlled effectively by the central government, uh, and uh, that had an impact on tourism. What's the status of that now? Uh, we've just had recent uh, assembly elections um, over in November and December of this, of this past year, and about a fifth of the assembly is now occupied by members of the Muslim Brothers. 
Wow. A fifth of the parliament. Yeah, basically. I think it would be 88 seats out of 400 and something. So, And do they wield any power? They certainly will. This is a big, big change. The government was sort of harried one way or another to have more open elections. Mm-hmm. And That's a sort of an interesting irony. As we push for democracy, they're going to have democracy and they're going mm-hmm. to be theocracies. <clears throat> well, I wouldn't say the Muslim Brothers are de- determined to turn Egypt into theocracy, but it's something that... You know, if you're going to have democracy in these countries, the organized political groups who have shown some sort of efficiency in looking after their clientele, mm-hmm. the, the public, are, are the Muslims. Are they the, are the Muslim brothers. For a poor villager in Egypt, for a poor villager, what's their feeling about Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein? Oh, Saddam Hussein, I don't think there's any love lost Saddam Nobody Hussein. Nobody liked him. He was Nobody just liked a, him. No, uh, no, no. thug. Oh, he was an absolute thug and he was a beast. Right. And there were many, many Egyptians who worked there as expatriates who were murdered. So, so people didn't see him as standing up boldly <laughs> to protect natural resources. In no, 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 no. He was, he was okay. just a, he was a thug. Like. Okay, so Sam, Saddam, thug, from Egyptian peasant point of view. Yeah. Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden, uh, crazy nutso. Crazy also. Yeah, crazy nutso. There, there is a lot of sympathy for what we unfortunately call fundamentalist Muslim movements. Mm-hmm. But there is no sympathy for... Uh, for beheadings or bombings or terrorism, no. I mean, Egypt did see terrorist attacks against foreign targets. 99.99999, whatever percent of Mm. people were disgusted and horrified. And in the early 90s, when we were having these things, whenever they were announced, I would, you know, whenever I caught a taxi, Egyptians would be falling over themselves to apologize. Because you look like an American. You're Scots, but you get into a taxi, they think you're an American, probably. Yeah, Northern European. Right. What's the now? Egypt, Egypt has been pretty bold in standing with Israel and so on. What's the current take on Israel? Oh, they're not particularly happy. No, I mean, I, I th- so Israel needs to have a little bit of etiquette here dealing with its neighbors. Oh, they know perfectly well that they do. Yes, I mean, Hosni Mubarak cannot afford to and, and does not want to fall into line with uh, what the Israeli administration has been doing because its populace won't accept it. Is Al Jazeera a sort of main uh, TV station? In Al Jazeera is very much watched, yeah. Is it a popular station? Absolutely, it's very popular because it's extremely good. Is it considered credible? It is, and oh. it is credible. It I is think. credible. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. What about Americans going to Egypt? Are they safe? Are they treated fairly? Is there any safeguards you would recommend? There's no way that anyone can tell the nationality of you walking down the street. And as you mentioned, you know, I'm, you know, I'm fair-haired, blue-eyed. I mm-hmm. could, you know, I could mm-hmm. be anything from Swedish through Americans. There's no way. So I live there. My daughter, who is eight years old, lives there. I you got a little girl yeah. in Egypt, and yeah. she goes to school? And she goes to school in Egypt. And, she's and you're not worried? blonder than fair-skinned than I am, and I wouldn't obviously allow her to live in a country that I thought was dangerous to people. Ah, that's of, interesting. You know. Clement, plus your calls as we take a closer look at exploring the Nile and the wonders of Egypt, both ancient and modern. Our number is 877-333-7425, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's 877-333-RICK, or radio at ricksteves.com as Travel with Rick Steves visits with Colin Clement, an archaeologist and tour guide living in Egypt. Hey, we've got some people on the line. Let's talk to Wayne in Nevada City, California. Hi, Wayne. Thanks for your call. What's up? Yes, I'm planning on uh, going to uh, Egypt this uh, spring. I have some uh, astronomical interest, and one of the things I'd like to do is start out in Cairo and figure out how to get over to the uh, Libya-Egyptian border uh, to, I believe the city is called El Saloum. Saloum, yeah, indeed. And I'm just kind of curious how I might uh, do that. Is there bus transportation, train transportation, air? Uh, and I've never been to Egypt before, and mm-hmm. I'd kind of like to know if, if uh, enough people speak English so that I would feel reasonably at ease and be able to communicate with them. Yes, I wouldn't worry about it at all, Wayne. English is very, very widely spoken. 
so you can travel around without knowing any Arabic whatsoever. I think it's always good to learn hellos and thank yous. And stuff. Yes, uh, but uh, you don't need uh, you don't need to be fluent in Arabic. You got different numbers, don't you? I mean, just the way you write the numbers. One, the to way ten. you write the numbers is, is different, indeed. Yeah. So Wayne, learn the. Uh, it's really fun to learn the Arabic. Uh, we call our numbers Arabic, don't we? Yes, right. but they're not. No, no, they're not. Correct. They're not. In the Arab world, you got what a five is like an upside down V. No, a five is a circle. A circle. What's the upside zero. down? The upside down V is eight. Eight. Yeah. And a backwards uh, seven. Backwards seven is six. Six. One is one. One is one. So we're off to the right start. Yeah, yeah. Buy yourself a little Arabic watch. You can pick them up for like 25 Egyptian pounds. An Arabic pounds. watch. That's a great idea. 25 Egyptian pounds, which is, is you know. You could wear it at home and confuse your friends. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I would always quiz myself on numbers by taxis because it are not taxis, but license plates because generally license plates have the license plate number in Western numbers and Arabic numbers. Which is the case in Egypt as well. Yeah. So you kind of clo- cover up half of it and you can check yourself. Yeah. So basically, Wayne's question is, if you, everybody knows how to get from Cairo to Alexandria to Luxor. If you want to get out in the Thule's oh, okay. from a to, desert so point of view. It would be easy. Uh, I, I was not sure if there's a direct connections from Cairo, but I, there certainly are from Alexandria. There are buses which go all, all the way along to, to Sulum. Uh, there is a train, but I, it's only, I wouldn't take it because it would take you about three or four days. In general, you'd go bus? Bus. Or you, can, you, you have service taxis, what are collective taxis, usually big Peugeot. Hmm which will take seven people, and there are many bus services. I mean, getting around the country is easy. You know, Wayne, I love the, uh, I, I guess, uh, what Colin calls a service taxi, a minibus, Domush in mm-hmm. uh, Turkey. Uh, they, they share, uh, it's sort of a private ride, but shared with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I see. And that's really fun because you are you got uh, local kids sitting on your lap, and you're playing backgammon and drinking tea, and it's just you're part of the party for a few hours. Mm-hmm. Will it go out that far? Though? The Saloum, absolutely, yes. I mean, the border between Egypt and, and Libya is open. And uh, so there's, there's there's a lot of traffic between the two countries because, you know, Egypt has a good sort of cons- consumer economy in a way that Libya doesn't. Hmm. Uh, and also, interesting enough, Egypt had makes great beer and pretty good wine, and <laughs> Libya is dry. Oh, really? So you have quite a lot of Libyan tourists coming over for the weekend. Well, that's interesting. I, I take it there are visitor centers at most of these cities. Solum, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything in, in the way of a visitor center out there. I mean, it's, that is out in the boondocks. Not many people are going there oh. unless they're crossing the border. But you'll find hotels and you'll find all sorts of facilities. I think it'd be very interesting. I've never been that far. I've been out to Marsamatru, which is like halfway there, but I've never been all the way to Solum. All right, Wayne, good luck. You're in for an all adventure. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. And we have Pete on the phone from Mercer Island in the state of Washington. Pete, hi. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for calling. Sure thing. Well, um, I just wanted to come um, on the air and share with you guys a little bit about my experience in Egypt. And um, I probably had my most um, transnational cultural immersion experience in Egypt of all the 23 countries that I went to during my bachelor's degree. And I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's easy to get to, and I always felt safe there. And it kind of opened a bunch of doors in terms of the other world out there and actually being in some good country environments, and it was just great. Now, that's great. I read your email, uh, Pete, and you had some concern about women and, and them being uh, uncomfortable or harassed sexually. What, what, what were you talking about there? Yeah, several times um, during the program, I was with a total of 23 students, half of them female, and it was quite common to have um, men make comments in Arabic and English um, just with their perception of Western women in mind, viewing them as sexual objects, and some of them were moderately uncomfortable, some very uncomfortable. At times, they were groped in various ways. And in speaking with lots of expats there in Egypt, um, it seems to be the norm that if you're going to be in the country for a while, something will happen. And, I mean, nobody was sexually assaulted in a serious way, but there were minor, you know, reaches here and there and constant verbal forms of harassment. From my experience in... um you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean world and so on, there's three kinds of people. There's men, there's local women, and there's Western women. And sometimes the local men don't quite know how to take, how to approach the Western women, and their approach has been sort of tainted by what they've seen in movies and on TV or, or read Certainly. in dirty magazines or something like that. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, Colin, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, th- I mean, it's, for, it is unfortunately true that for, it's a very different experience being a Western woman or being a woman. Mm-hmm. In, in Egyptian society. Who's not covered up in being some a kind bloke. of a... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, local women might have these incredibly modest uh, gunny sacks over their well, bodies yeah. and heads. Basically. I mean, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of that. Egypt is becoming more orthodox in, in so that anybody way. anybody who's not is opening themselves up to be treated with no, less respect? Or no, what? I don't think that is the case. I mean, I, it will It happen. is possible for a Western woman to be um, very culturally sensitive, 
but that is not a guarantee of um, avoiding the comments and all that. Well, and absolutely. Well, and women, unfortunately, one has to realize that the Egyptian young, you know, terrestrial-powered Egyptian men will hassle their own females. We saw that as well. Mm-hmm. They'll happen to ha- hassle Egyptian women You said testosterone-powered well. young men, so yeah. that's, that's something that's uh, not unique to Egypt, right? So no, it's any, not unique to Egypt. And especially this is kind of macho world, whether it's Italians or, or Moroccans or Egyptians. Uh, you're you're going to have... You're gonna have young. Uh, you're gonna have catcalls and stares and and uh, a little bit of uh, that kind of disrespect going on in this part of the world. Um, it's kind of like the reason dogs chase cars. You know, it's just sport. It, it is, there is one sort of positive aspect of being a foreign woman in Egypt is that they have access to the female side of life within Egypt. Very true. In a way that a, you, as a man or I, as a man, would not have, because there is a separation of the sexes. This is a much more conservative uh, country. So what advice would you give an American woman traveling to Egypt then? Make friends with local women. They would probably see them as a beautiful window on the West. Yeah. Make friends with local women. And they'd invite you places where a guy would never get. Absolutely. And you get to have a look at their side of life. You get to know know, what goes on behind closed doors. Because like in any conservative society, what goes on behind closed doors is behind closed doors. You don't know about it. And that's really where it's at. And that's the most interesting thing. Especially in in Islam because the men seem to rule the roost. They're all out there smoking their hubbly bubblies Mm. and, uh, you know, uh, uh, riding their camels or whatever, but the women are ruling the domestic scene. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So when we're on our bicycle there across the river from uh, Luxor, women have a better um, backdoor opportunity than a, a guy like me or you because they could meet uh, uh, the lady of the house and be invited in and help cook dinner. Absolutely. Yeah, to give you an example of that, um, I had a good friend over the course of the semester, probably met him 10 times. It was on visit number 10 that I met his wife. And she was in the house all 10 visits, but it wasn't until the 10th time visiting the house that was actually invited to meet his spouse. Exactly. Standard operating procedure probably yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. Pete, so, you also said that um, you sharing your Christian faith there was actually a plus? Uh, being Christian, sharing about my faith was a definite plus. Um, Why? I'm 23 years old, and I'm a virgin. That was completely shocking to my Muslim hosts. They assumed that American boys my age would have slept around many times and um, were actually kind of curious as to what kind of stuff I'd done. And the fact that I was not only Christian, but I had a similar life to what they'd expect of their children, um, got me a lot of respect in the culture, and hmm. I think probably contributed to my being welcomed more in the house. Well, you've, you've managed to uh, share uh, a lot culturally in your travels, and I think that um, makes the experience a little more real and vivid. For sure. Yeah. Uh, 10% of Egypt is Christian anyways, right? Coptic Christian. Yeah, about 10%. Well, that's what the official figures are. I'd place it more at 5%. Okay, great. Hey, well, thanks, Pete, for your call. Sure. And uh, good luck in your future travels. Appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye. And Clarice, Clarice on the phone from Monterey, California. Clarice? Yes, hello. Do I got it right there, Clarice? Yes, you do. Thanks for your call. Have you been to Egypt? Yes, we um, went there for three weeks while we were living in Jordan. Um, And we went went during Ramadan. And I think a lot of not just Americans, but people are leery of traveling in the Middle East during Ramadan. And we found it to be a very interesting experience and a whole side of, of that Muslim culture that, that you don't see unless you travel at that time or live over there. Any downside of traveling in, in Ramadan? Difficult to get food. A lot yeah. of the restaurants are shut during the day. If they are open, yeah. it'll just be non-Muslims eating. Yeah. Is that uh, something that to be ashamed of, or is it just accepted that some people are um, exercising this uh, f- you know, uh, standard and others aren't? But, well, given that there is a sizable Christian minority in the country, obviously they, are not, they do not have to fast in the same okay. way as Muslims. So but you'll find an awful lot of the, the, little, the little buffets, the little uh, um, sort of sandwich cool. shops, etc., will be shut. And that's you know, one month for, out of every year? For daylight hours. Well, lunar month, yeah. One lunar month out of yeah. the year, and it rotates kind of. So yeah, it moves all the time. Yeah, ten, ten days every year. I remember when I was in Morocco during Ramadan, I got woken up every morning just before the sun rose because everybody was partying and eating, and and, uh, mm. and then the sun's up and there's no more eating, and it's kind of sullen sol- mm. a little bit. And then everybody's poised at their soup bowls, and as soon as the sun goes down, you get this uh, siren, mm-hmm. and then everybody digs in. Yeah. So, Clarice, you, you found it to be a festive time. Yeah, we did. Um, it was during the winter, so it wasn't very hard for us to go all day without, you know, without food and water. We kind of got used to it after. You actually, day. you actually did the fast then. Yeah, because we we were kind of sensitive to the people that were, wow, were good fasting, for you. and um, so we kind of went along with it. There was a day where we were beat, and we found a 
Pizza Hut with all the blinds drawn and had lunch there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For people who don't know, Ramadan is a Muslim festival one month out of the year when people do not eat from sun up till sundown, and they don't drink either. Wow. Now, Muhammad was pretty um, pretty flexible when it came to hardships and so on. If you're sick or if you're traveling and and if you're or if you're pregnant, you you could eat and drink. That's I I, I really like the way Muhammad. Uh, um, has all of these caveats a little, that, yeah, a little that make things time. reasonable. Yeah. Uh, Colin, do you have any, would you say just basically if you're going to be traveling in Islam, Ramadan or no Ramadan, it, there's not a plus or minus overall, or, or would you say to steer clear of it? It depends. I, I generally would steer clear of it because of the, you know, the problems of feeding. It depends what you really want to do. And I certainly wouldn't go traveling in Ramadan during the summer months, when, when Ramadan moves into oh, summer months, yeah. which won't be for a few years yet, but that, that can be very, very difficult. And because the day's much longer, the, 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 you know, everything's very hot. Um, I, I don't know if it's a good time to travel specifically because mm-hmm. you'll find that people are kind of listless. Towards the end of the day, you'll find tempers get short. The, the, you know, the traffic can be even worse as people – it can be positively dangerous. Everyone rushes home around breakfast time. To eat. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Clarice, you've been – I think you travel with a very uh, yeah, well a good done. attitude. Well, you know, yeah. when, in, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Egypt during Ramadan, fast with the locals. Fast with the locals. All right. right. Hey, did, uh, how did you, uh, uh, did, did you, did you have any other experiences in Egypt that you wanted to share? Uh, how did the merchants treat you and so on? Um, they treated us well. Um, no one really, they would guess that we were some European nationality because we saw maybe 10 Americans that whole three weeks we were there. What year were you there? Were you there? It was 2002. And did you feel, and that was right after 9-11, really, um, mm-hmm. Did you feel, were you glad you went? Was it? We was, were, and was, we didn't feel uncomfortable. Everyone made us feel very welcome. They were so glad to see us when they found out we were Americans. We said, you know, send, send more hmm. Americans here. We love Americans. You know, this is interesting because I, I hate to sort of um, dampen tourism because I think it's such a positive thing, especially after 9-11. But uh, to be honest, I, I wouldn't steer people to much of the Middle East right now. With no. the way things are going, but I and I and I haven't been to Egypt or Morocco for a little while, and I'm always happy to talk to people who have been to Egypt and Morocco lately because these are two very good destinations, along with Turkey. To me, those are the three most interesting Muslim countries to visit from Europe. And uh, by every indication, I've I've heard uh, Americans are welcome. You don't feel uncomfortable. They're thankful you're there. Tourism is a big part of the economy. A great employer. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what great. We found. Clarice, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. I've been talking with Colin Clement, who's a friend of mine and a tour guide who lives in Alexandria, Egypt. Colin, when we're in Egypt, uh, if you wanted to just do something, an experience, to me it's always important to get your hands on something. I mean, smoke a hubbly-bubbly, play backgammon. Uh, what would you recommend for somebody with a half-a-day free in Cairo to, to really uh, do something other than go to a museum? Uh, there's, I mean, there's too many things to do there. Other than a museum, hang out. I mean, Cairo is a great hanging out city. Where do you hang out? What do you do? How do you connect with people if you don't know anybody? How do you connect with people? You, you, it's not difficult to connect with people in, in, in Egypt. You know, they all, you know, people love to talk to you. You get into the cafes. I, I go up to old Islamic Cairo. You're kind explore, of a celebrity. Wander around. You are. You, an American wandering through. It's a celebrity. See yourself. I feel like an old uh, favorite politician coming home, you know. People, people will engage with you. You start looking at what they're selling. They will not only try to sell it to you, but they'll talk to you. They'll, you know, sit down and have tea. Don't feel hustled or obliged to buy. Right. It's a, still a very generous society. So, you know, we've, we've perhaps in the West have lost this idea of just open-handedness, just come and have a cup of tea with me, sit and chat. Merchants will wine and dine you. They've got all the time in the world to talk. Exactly. You might they're buy a leather rushed. coat, you might not. not no yeah, big deal. Yeah, they're not rushed. Take photographs of, of your hometown. Take photographs of... Uh, Bring a Ziploc baggie full of show-and-tell items from home. Absolutely. Fantastic. I like to hop in a taxi... Um, give a guy five bucks and say, give me the best tour you can. Crank up the music, roll down the windows, take me into, isn't Kano Khalili the old? Kano Khalili, yeah. Kano Khalili. Just say, Kano Khalili. Uh, maximum there. adventure. Yeah. Let's go. And they crank up this great music. Yeah. And you're Blow slow. Yourself. You're waving out the window. You got all these people. Hey, you know, a lot of no, fun. there's any number of things to do. Just, you're going to Gazira. I mean, instead of seeing, see Slick, new Cairo, Gazira, the, the Gazira like Island. Very important. Gazira over Island, the, over the other side in the area of Mohandasin. A lot of us yeah. Americans are looking for ladies with um, pottery on their heads at the well, you know, and, and that went out with uh, with uh, the Middle Ages in some cases, yeah. and we've got to check out the, the modern yeah, world. There's a great jazz club in Mohandasin. All right. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you got me great. thinking about Egypt here. <laughs> All right. Thank you uh, best wishes, Colin. some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. 
When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit a hometown brag and traveler's haiku. A haiku is a traditional Japanese form of poetry using three lines. Remember, the first one is five syllables long, the second line contains seven syllables, and the third one is five syllables long. There's usually a reference to nature and an element of surprise in a haiku, but we're not purists about the form. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. Here are a few haiku from our traveling listeners. Deborah Duke from Houston, Texas, is planning a trip to Egypt and Israel this year and wrote this about her trip to Israel in 1999. O Jerusalem, holy city, ancient faiths, perilous discord. Gabriel Nelson teaches language arts at South Kitsap High School near Seattle and writes us this Dublin haiku. A true lit major, I spent my day in Dublin reading Beowulf. And Marlene Walko from Crestwood, Illinois sends us this haiku she titled Vacation. Germans have six weeks. Sounds more civilized to me. We work too hard here. So again, we're looking for your submissions. Look in the 15 Seconds of Fame section of our website at ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program. And listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Rachel Unk, Sonia Grosset, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.